2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by, your, uh, or by our letter. And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Father, as we consider your word for a few minutes this Lord's Day, we would pray that we would continue to marvel at the great salvation you have given to us in Jesus. And if there are those apart from Christ, would you please use your messenger this Lord's Day to proclaim faithfully the gospel. And may your spirit work in the hearts and minds of all of us as we reflect on that salvation together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've read about God's great salvation already this morning, and it will come as absolutely no surprise to any of us when I remind us that it's always been the testimony of the Lord's people that salvation belongs to the Lord. Those few words were the words that Jonah actually proclaimed from the belly of the big fish before the Lord delivered him out of that peculiar bondage. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That too is what David said in Psalm 3 verse 8. But David didn't just personalize it as he did in Psalm 27, the words that we just read. But he said this in Psalm 3 verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, that's the same phrase of Jonah the same invoking of his covenant God, Jehovah. But then David ends, your blessing be upon your people. Corporately, we recognize salvation is of the Lord for his people. And so the author of Hebrews could tell us and remind his readers that the full revelation of God in Christ in the new covenant era required his people even more to be amazed. And as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 3, it's a great salvation that we dare not neglect. And then Paul adds his inspired words to those of other saints as he calls his readers, including us today, to consider and to marvel at the great salvation that we have received from our God. And we said last week our text has been considered as, quote, a theology in miniature, unquote, because of the many great truths about salvation that we see in just these few verses. You may recall with me that last week, as we examined verses 13 and 14, we said our salvation puts an end to the condemnation that our sins deserves. We've read about the condemnation that awaits the wicked who follow after Satan and the man of lawlessness in the first 12 chapters. But our author, Paul, tells us, but that's not what awaits us. There is a great contrast for the wicked followers and the righteous ones who are not condemned. But secondly, we said another great thing about our salvation is it is the work of our triune God. The Father is the one who chose us, according to verse 13. The Son is the one who lovingly died for us, and the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. And if that weren't enough, 
Verse 14 goes on to tell us that they work together, the Trinity does, to bring about our effectual calling and ultimately our glorification. And so the third thing we emphasized last Lord's Day is that our salvation must, Paul's word is, we ought always to give thanks. It, we must respond then to our great salvation with gratitude for what God has given to his people. Us individually, yes, but corporately down through the ages. We add our voices and say salvation belongs to the Lord. May the Lord bless his people with that great salvation. And so we ended last week being reminded that scene after scene in the book of Revelation with the heavenly host, including the saints who've been redeemed by the Lord, are crying out in with words like what we read in, in Revelation 19.1. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Well, our text goes on to talk even more about the great salvation as Paul describes it for us. We want to reflect this Lord's Day a little further upon that great salvation that we have. We'll see a connection between our salvation and God's word. We'll see a connection between our salvation and our perseverance. We'll also see a connection between our salvation and God's blessing upon us. Well, as we begin by noting that God's word, the Bible, is the source of truth. The Bible is the source of truth. Paul writes at the end of 13 that the Thessalonians are the first fruits to be saved. And how does that come about? That comes about because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, but also it comes about as uh, those who believe the truth. The great contrast once more between those who are condemned in the first 12 verses and those who believe the truth and are saved in the text before us. Note with me again, we've done this two or three times previously, but it's just worth emphasizing what Paul tells us about these people who follow Satan, who follow the man of lawlessness in verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, we learned that these are people who do false miracles. In verse 10, we we recognize that they are fooled by the wicked deception and they refuse to love the truth. In verse 11, God then sends them a delusion so that they continue to believe what is false. And in verse 12, we're told once more that they did not believe the truth. There's the contrast. Wicked, condemned sinners do not believe the truth. God's people recognize the Bible as the source of truth. We are not deceived by the great deceiver because of the great salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We who are saved have been delivered from the father of lies. And now we embrace the God of truth. And this written uh, record of God's truth, of course, is contained only in the Bible. Jesus himself tells us in John 17, 17, sanctify them through the truth as he prays to his father. Thy word is truth only. In the inspired pages of sacred scripture, do we learn of the salvation of God in Christ? Paul tells Timothy, his beloved son in the Lord, in 2 Timothy 3.15, that it is these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The written word is the source of truth because it points us to 
the living truth, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is truth incarnate. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life to bring us back to the Father. And these are two hallmark teachings of the Reformation as they go together, as we recognize our salvation is based on divine truth. It must be the Bible alone, and it must be Christ alone, revealed to us as the will of God for our salvation. And it's only in the Bible do we find the good news of the gospel. And the gospel, part and parcel of Paul's life and his ministry, it's interesting, it's fascinating here that Paul doesn't say, I preached the gospel. He says, to this God called you through our gospel. Paul recognizes, along with Silas and Timothy, that what he proclaims is the truth of Christ's gospel, but he so embraces that gospel, he's not hesitant to, to say it is his gospel as well. And so Paul's very clearly emphasizing for us here that it is through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that people come in faith to our Savior. Very uh, beginning of his epistles to the Thessalonians. By the way, it is fascinating to me how much of what Paul says in this text before us, he's already said to the Thessalonians. Sometimes we need just to hear the same old gospel story, don't we? Sometimes we just need some great reminders of the great simple truths, the foundational truths that God has given to us. And that's what we face here this morning. Beloved, I know that we've already attested to the fact that we believe that God's revealed will is in Scripture alone through Christ alone. But notice Paul keeps emphasizing these foundational truths for all of us, and we need to be reminded from time to time of this wonderful, great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul does repeat himself here, because go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in work, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It is indeed true that the proclamation of the gospel is what brings sinners to salvation. Paul also said to the church in Rome, in Romans 10, 17, <clears throat> excuse me, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so too, our catechism, I think, rightly summarizes this for us. The spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and of converting sinners, of building them up in holiness, in comfort, through faith, unto salvation. See, each Lord's Day, our goal ought to be to preach the whole counsel of God as found in the Word of God, and to remind both saints and sinners the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's gospel, Christ's gospel, it's our gospel today as well. And so I would invite you, if you would like, to turn to Romans chapter 10, because here is Paul's, one of Paul's many declarations of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He's already told us in 1017, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We've read that earlier. I want to go back a few verses in our text, though, in Romans 10. And let's read beginning with verse 9. This is the gospel that Paul proclaimed. This is the gospel of our salvation. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Obviously, we recognize in that statement so many great truths, but let me remind you that Paul is proclaiming very clearly Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is Lord. He is the one who died, and he had to die for sinners. We have to be saved from our sin and the condemnation it deserves. And it's only by believing in Jesus in our hearts that that will happen for us. And then those who truly believe such things in their hearts will proclaim them in their mouths as well. For with the heart one believes and is made right with God or justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confess your sins, recognize the need for Jesus, salvation comes. That's why we start each Lord's Day with the reminder to us we need that daily cleansing, even those of us who have already been saved. But if you have yet to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you, based on the scriptures before us, recognize salvation is of the Lord and only of the Lord. Salvation comes only through the gospel, the proclamation that Christ died for sinners. All men are sinners, condemned to die apart from the Lord Jesus. But scripture also tells us, and Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, 16 in verse 11 here, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Paul's been talking about the Jews' relationship to Christ and then the Gentiles. And now he says he's the same Lord of all. And he bestows riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something that we ought to rejoice in? That's something we should never forget. We who, by the grace of God, have seen our sin and recognized our need for Jesus and called out, Lord, save me, have been saved. We have God's eternal promise that such is the case. What a great salvation we have. What a great cause for rejoicing. We must, we ought to give thanks and be full of gratitude that our sins are forgiven because of Jesus. But if we turn back to 2 Thessalonians in our text, Paul then uses another term for us here to describe the gospel. And it's not a term that we would often probably use. But in verse 15, as he's talking about the, the Bible, the word of God, as it's proclaimed, he says this. So then, brothers, in verse 15, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul, like the other disciples, like the Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets, had a special place in the history of redemption. He was used by God to both proclaim and to write the truths of Scripture. We do not, of course, have any of his speeches. Uh, the audio-visual technology of that day wasn't real great. None of those things have survived down through Obviously, he didn't have those, but we do have what he spoke in written form. We do have these written words before us, and that's why we expend so much time each Lord's Day looking at the written word of God. That's the apostolic tradition that Paul's talking about here. He uses that same term, tradition, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, when he says this, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. 
Now we all recognize the Bible has already told us in a few places we should work and not be idle. But as Paul has spoken these things before now, he writes them down and we have them for us in Holy Scripture, this clear command from God. And Paul's already reminded the Thessalonians at the beginning of this chapter, if anyone comes to you with word or letter and says, I've given it and it contradicts what I've already told you, do not listen to them. That's not apostolic tradition. And so we have a clear command to be faithful in Jude chapter 3 to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that faith was delivered by the written word that God has given to us from the apostles and others. That's the tradition that Paul's talking about here. And we must be very, very, very careful because as in the days of our Lord and his disciples, wicked men were substituting the commandments of God in his gospel with their own human traditions. And those human traditions were condemned very, very clearly by both Jesus and by Paul. So hear these words of condemnation for those who would hold on to the traditions of men and replace the truth of the gospel with those traditions. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Mark 7, 8, you leave the commandment of God. You hold to the traditions of men. And Paul condemns those in Galatia who had adulterated the true gospel and he and had replaced it with one of human origin or human tradition. And so Paul says in Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we presented to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned forever. Paul couldn't use a stronger term, could he, to say false tradition going contrary to the written word of God must be rejected, and those who hold to it must not be followed. And so, too, in Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul even uses that same word tradition in referencing human tradition. And he says to the church at Colossae in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Notice those phrases being held captive, being in bondage. We've been freed from the bondage of sin and condemnation. Now don't go back to some sort of works righteousness idea based on human tradition. Don't be held in bondage to such things. And notice also it's empty deceit, the deceit of the world around us, the lies of Satan and those who would teach false gospels must be rejected. Why? Paul goes on to say, it's because they're according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, but not according to Christ. And so we recognize, do we not hear and are reminded of the Reformed teaching yet again of sola scriptura as the Bible alone. Church tradition, man-made rules for faith, for worship, for salvation had replaced the Bible as the final authority as a true source of salvation during the time of the Reformation. But that wasn't just the case then. Even today, we must hold fast to the salvation of God's word and not that derived from fallen, sinful man. No matter what title, no matter what position, no matter what grand tradition they may be from, we must follow the apostolic tradition of Jesus, of Peter, of James, of John, and of Paul.
Not the tradition of any pope, cardinal, or bishop. The only tradition that matters is that tradition which has been preserved in God's word. That's the only source of truth. That is the gospel of our salvation. And we who have been granted salvation from sin and freed from that condemnation that that sin deserves, we recognize that saving faith in Christ is characterized by endurance. An endurance that overcomes whatever hardships, whatever trials, whatever persecutions, whatever false teachings may surround us as they did in the day when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And so we recognize there is a connection between our salvation and our perseverance. Indeed, our perseverance is a part of our salvation, is it not? See, the same God who chose us is the same God who called us. He's the same God who regenerated us. He's the same God who granted us repentance and faith. He's the same God who declared that we were justified. He's the same God who is ongoing in our sanctification. He will preserve us because he gives us a genuine faith that does persevere until the end of our days here on earth. And then, of course, we will be glorified in heaven. But part of that salvation is indeed our perseverance. See, many uh, would read chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul gives thanks for the brothers there, that they're among the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And they might think that belief is a reference perhaps to the time of conversion when sinners proclaim that they trust in Jesus to save them. Please know that I would never, ever deny that we all need the regenerating work of God's Holy Spirit to give us new natures so that we then have saving faith. But if our faith is real, it will not be a one-time, momentary act that may or may not continue into the future. The Bible knows no such kind of saving faith. See, the belief that Paul is talking about here is an ongoing belief in the truth, an ongoing, continual, day-by-day faith in Christ, in the Father and in the Son. Paul's writing, remember, to the Thessalonians, they had been persecuted by Jews and Gentiles alike. And they had been taught many falsehoods. We've seen a lot of them relating to the second coming of Jesus. And so it's to these dear readers that Paul is exhorting them and encouraging them to remain faithful, to believe in the truth of the gospel and having faith alone. And he calls them then to continue to believe in spite of the opposition that they face at the hands of wicked men. And if you'll turn over just a few chapters in your Bible, Paul gives a personal appeal to one individual, and that is his beloved son, Timothy. We've already read a portion of this passage. But the significance of endurance, perseverance in our salvation, so significant especially as Paul writes uh, to Timothy, that I thought we'd do well to read this portion of God's word as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. And Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He's in prison, about to die. He knows of Timothy, the church at Ephesus. Obviously, we've seen it in the festival Nikon church. It's no surprise then that Paul would say, this is what we should expect. While evil men and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I cannot emphasize enough 
brothers and sisters, how often we hear the contrast between the gospel of truth and any other gospel, which is a gospel based on deceit and lies and the wickedness of Satan. And so Paul brings that up again here, the contrast. Don't fall for those wicked men and that wicked gospel. But as for you, Paul, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And we might think immediately that Paul is referencing himself, and that is perhaps indeed true because Paul did teach Timothy many things, and he's encouraging him to continue to believe and to trust in what you've learned from my hand. But turn back to chapter 1, verse 5 as well. Because Paul there says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, now I am sure dwells in you as well. Young people, you know, it's interesting as I was reflecting on this text. Look around. Some of you, you have your mom sitting right beside you. Some of you have your grandparents in the room with you. Or if not today, they normally are with you. What a blessing to know that from childhood you were taught and you learned these great truths of the faith. What a blessing to know that you're part of a church that takes seriously the need to proclaim an unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ each Lord's Day. And so I exhort all of you young people, as Paul did with Timothy, continue what you've learned and firm, hold firmly to that great belief. Paul goes on to make it clear to Timothy uh, what he's talking about, how from childhood you've been acquainted with those sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Don't abandon the faith. Have true, genuine, saving faith that perseveres. And Paul doesn't have to go very far to give an example of what he's talking about. He, as I said, is in jail about to die, and God revealed that to him. But he can then write to Timothy in just a few more verses over in chapter 4, verse 7. Here's his testimony. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've had that endurance. I've had the perseverance that God calls his people to have. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And remember, that's been our emphasis in First and Second Thessalonians together, that emphasis on uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So we remain faithful, as Paul did, we acknowledge, as David and Jonah did, salvation is from the Lord. Perseverance in your faith, then, is what we're called to do. Keep believing the truth. And then in our text, in Second Thessalonians, Paul uses two very simple but pretty vivid terms to explain to us what this perseverance is all about. Notice, if you will, Back in our text, chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So first of all, stand firm. Do not move away from the traditions I taught you. Do not leave the gospel. Stand on the promises of the gospel alone and then recognize the salvation of the Lord. But we have a wonderful illustration for that in Scripture. God's people had just escaped from Egypt, but now as they exit, they see the Red Sea before them, 
and they see Pharaoh and his army behind them. And I don't think any of us are going to be too surprised that Exodus 14 tells us they were afraid. And what does Moses say to them? Moses turned to the people of God and said, fear not, stand firm. Same two words that we just read. See the salvation of the Lord, which will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And of course, that's exactly what happened as the Pharaoh and his army were destroyed in the Red Sea. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. See, in the midst of the temptations in this life, it's our tendency to fret. It's our tendency to complain. And God still tells us, be silent Be still. God has already fought for you. Satan, sin, death, wicked men are defeated in Christ's death and resurrection. So stand firm. Attest with David and with Jonah. Salvation is from the Lord. Keep on trusting in Jesus and the promises of God's word. Then we also read that word not only to stand firm, but we're also told to hold to what has been taught to us. Hold to the traditions. Hold to the gospel. Well, I already quoted from you for you from Colossians 2.8 where Paul exhorted the people not to fall for human traditions. But if you want to turn with me, turn back there to chapter 2. I want to read to you verses 18 and 19 at this point. Because in these verses we have the only other time in the New Testament where that word hold is used. And it's interesting that outside of the New Testament, the word sometimes was meant to take a firm grip as in holding one's hands tightly. So this is not just a a slight holding on, but this is a a strong clinging is the idea. Well, well, notice Colossians 2. And notice with me uh, verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that is being self-isolated somehow, as if if you cloistered yourself alone, you'd somehow get rid of your sinful nature. Right? Or worshiping of angels. See, those are human traditions. Those are not apostolic traditions. And details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. See, those are the human traditions that we must reject. And these people do not hold fast to the head. Well, who's the head? The Lord Jesus Christ is the head. He's the one from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So we are to hold, uh, stand firm, but we are also to hold fast. Yes, Paul tells us in Thessalonica, in Thessalonians, to hold fast to the gospel. Here he tells us to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there it is. You can't separate the gospel of Christ, without Christ himself. And as I said earlier, I would exhort you once more, stand firm, don't go anywhere, hang on to Jesus. And keep trusting the one who died for you. And you should know full well, beloved, that he, of course, will never let you go. His salvation guarantees our perseverance. We also all would recognize, I believe this morning, that this is all the result, all the blessings of of God upon us. That's why we have the salvation we have. And to emphasize that to his readers, Paul pronounces a benediction, a prayerful blessing upon the Thessalonians in the next two verses in our text. And I've already said this as we read uh, those those benedictions, but uh, it's it's interesting. Usually we expect Paul at the end of the epistle to, to have one 
benediction, and that, of course, does happen here. But he also gives us four other benedictions, four other seeking of blessing. The word benediction literally means good words. And so he's giving them good words of blessing to his readers. And so as we consider our salvation and our God's blessing with Paul, we acknowledge this is a blessing from our loving God, a blessing from our loving God. May, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us is how Paul begins this benediction. He doesn't give the blessing yet. He's just reminding his readers, first of all, that this is an intimate relationship. Uh, he uses the word our to describe Jesus and to describe the Father. This isn't just the Jesus, the Savior, the God, the Father. It is our God and it's our Father. And the reason we have that intimate relationship is, of course, because Jesus died on the cross for us. He showed his love first. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. We read that in verse 13. And so as a result of that, we then lovingly confess that Jesus is our Savior and God is our Father. But it's also worth noting here that even though two people in the Godhead are mentioned, the Father and the Son, the words, the verbs, comfort and establish in verse 17 are singular verbs. You'd expect them to be plural verbs. Forgive this horrible grammar for just a minute. If I were to say to you, Amy and David is going to the store, you would say, you know full well it's supposed to be Amy and David are going to the store. But it's so fascinating that the work of the Son and the Father so united that Paul can use a singular verb and not be, be portraying anything that's inaccurate. The Father and the Son working together lovingly have brought us the blessing of salvation. And that's Paul then identifying the blessing in that way. But note also it's a blessing of eternal comfort and a blessing of good hope. God loved us, and then he gave us that blessing of comfort and hope. And again, verses 13 through 17 are great contrast with verses 1 through 12. We read that those who reject the truth, who follow the lies of Satan and his emissary, the men of lawlessness, are killed by the breath of Jesus upon his return. Verse 8 tells us that. But that's not what awaits us who've received salvation from our loving God. Even in the midst of sorrow in this life, we know our future is secure. Ours is an eternal comfort. And I know some of you have translations that don't have the word comfort, that have the word encouragement, or perhaps even consolation. It is interesting. It's the same word that Paul used, or Jesus used, when he said, I will send you another comforter, another one who will encourage, another one who will uh, strengthen and uh, console you. That, of course, is the Holy Spirit, the great comforter. And so it is true on this, in this earth, even when we go through that hardships, that we have an eternal comfort. And that eternal comfort is coupled with a good hope. And good really should be used, I am convinced here, in the moral sense. We use the word good in so many ways, like I had a good day yesterday, I had a good meal. But I think the word good here should not be seen just as something like nice to look forward to. But rather, it's good because God has made us to glorify, to enjoy, to commune, to be with him. And that's what saints in glory are looking forward to. The eternal comfort and the good hope, and it's an assurance that we have. It's not just a, a, a possible wish. It is a certainty for believers. 
And Paul had already shared these sentiments. Again, I told you Paul repeats himself a lot. Well, Paul had already shared these sentiments with the, with the saints in 1 Thessalonians 4. The saints there were worried that when believers died, had already died, they wouldn't actually wind up in heaven um, uh, at the resurrection. And Paul wants to straighten that error out. And so he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. We have a hope. We have a hope even for those who died in Christ. And then Paul goes on to explain when the Lord returns, all will be with him. And so then he ends that passage by saying in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Hope, encouragement, comfort, consolation, all go together. And Paul puts all these things together for us in another portion of God's word as well. In Romans 15, verse 4, we read this. Whatever was written in former days, there's the scriptures that we talked about, the foundation of our salvation. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, there again, perseverance, just as we talked about in Thessalonians, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope all together. Perseverance, the Bible, encouragement, hope. That is the great salvation that we have in Jesus. And that great salvation that we have, we would all attest readily to is this. It is through the grace that God has given to us. As, as Paul says at the end of verse 16, we have eternal comfort. We have good hope through grace. Ours is an undeserved blessing. None of us would ever proclaim we, we merit somehow the blessing that God has given to us. It is all of grace. And that's why Paul, when he ends the letter, he does end it with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I don't think I have to belabor this point. We would all readily attest to that. But I do exhort you, beloved brothers and sisters, you who probably can quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. Don't just know the verse. Would you please continue to marvel at this great salvation that we have in Jesus? Keep singing amazing grace that saved wretches like us. Keep singing marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Never ever cease to thank God for the salvation that he's given to us. And there's one more marvel about all this grace. Another great truth about God's great salvation that we need to recognize this morning as well. And that is God transforms our hearts, our actions, and our speech as he changes sinners into saints. And Paul reminds us that God's salvation is a blessing for our entire being, a blessing for our entire being. He's already told us that God has given us eternal comfort and hope, and then he asks for the Lord's blessing to comfort their hearts and to establish them as well. Same word for comfort, the work perhaps of the Holy Spirit is perhaps even being inferred here, since we already have mentioned the Father and the Son very specifically by name, and the Holy Spirit is the great comforter but not only may he comfort us but may he also establish those hearts the word establishes fully supported or buttressed see in the midst of trials and persecution in this life 
so frequently referenced in Paul's two letters to the church at Thessalonica, he's reminded them they need a steadfast heart. And God graciously blesses his people with such hearts as he sanctifies them. And so as a result of those good hearts, what then happens next, Paul can then also say, may he establish the hearts and the comfort of the hearts so that you will then produce the good works and the good words that God has called you to do. So somebody has summarized these two verses pretty well. Benediction are good words. We have the good hope of good hearts as we're delivered on the day of judgment. And so as God's people, then we go forth and do those good works and and proclaim those good words that God has called us to proclaim. And that's exactly what Paul has already said to the, written to the church at Thessalonica in a benediction that we frequently use um, in our services in chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, your entire being. May your whole spirit and your soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And we need not fret and think that means all the onus is on us. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There's a promise of our sanctification, a promise of our perseverance, a promise of our glorification, because that's the great salvation that we have in our triune God. Well, brothers and sisters, after two weeks of considering many great truths about our great salvation, and we could consider many more, may we as those who have been blessed to embrace the truth of the gospel, may we then stand firm May we hold fast to that truth and to the true God and to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's delivered us from our sins and the condemnation that we deserve. With David, with Jonah, with others, may we readily proclaim salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we now seek that blessing because we are your people. You have saved us. You've given us such a great salvation. Father, help us never to forget these things, never to become hardened by saying, well, I've heard that before. We need that daily reminder of the gospel. Thank you for it in this passage before us. And if there are people, Father, who are apart from Jesus, would you please draw them to yourself, cause them to see that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.